Amen. Hey, we're going to be in Titus chapter 2 today. Titus chapter 2, and we're going to look at all 15 verses together. Titus chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 15. I hope you found your way there. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I've, I've been in, man, probably in the news more than I want to lately. I don't mean personally in the news. I've done nothing of notoriety. I mean, uh, that came out weird. Uh, no, I've just read the news. I've seen the news. I've, I've been interacting with some, some articles, some, some things that have been happening recently, um, perhaps more than I, I usually do. And I've come to this spot where I've asked this question that I've heard people around me my whole life ask. And the question is this, what is the world coming to? I mean, seriously, like, what is the world coming to? I think we all recognize the culture that we live in and so many of the issues that affect us. So many of the things that that we face daily, and not just in the big city, but I mean here, where we are, where we find ourselves in our community, and and even Birmingham, just where we are. But there's cultural issues all around us and things that are disheartening and challenging. We have a real struggle with the culture that we exist in. And if you don't believe me, you will later today when you pick up your phone. You will tomorrow when someone sends you a link. And you're at work at 10 in the morning and somebody sends you, have you seen this? Right? Like We, we are constantly being availed to the brokenness and the pain of the world in which we live. There's all kinds of cultural issues that we face. And here's the thing. We know this because in some ways we're doing what we've been called to do as believers. We are trained to think critically of the cultures that we find ourselves in. We're supposed to look at the world around us with a very critical eye. Because in reality, we don't like so much of what we see. Because you and I want to be people in Christ that see and experience people loving one another. And that's not the kind of stuff that makes headlines. We want to see people caring for one another, protecting one another, and not leading one another into sin. So how do we get there when we see what the world is coming to I read a helpful article recently in which uh, a gentleman named Justin Ariel Bailey, he's a Ph.D. and theology professor who's really done a lot of work on culture and the secular age and how believers interact. And he talks about the brokenness of culture and he talks about the way forward. And he was asked this question, where do you see evangelical Christians interacting with the culture in a way that's helpful? And then where do you see them falling short? And his answer is incredibly powerful. This is what he says. He says, I'm encouraged when I see Christians playing the long game, cultivating what someone like Eugene Peterson called long obedience in the same direction, rather than being driven by ambition or driven by fear. And this is what he says. He says, there's a maxim that I love. Criticize, so criticize the culture, criticize by creating. Which means that the best critique is something beautiful. And that sounds like Titus chapter 2. This sounds like what Paul is describing as he writes this book. 
He writes this letter ultimately to his friend Titus who has been with him in missionary work and gospel work and church work. And he's now in this area, this island called Crete. Right? It's in the Mediterranean. It's a Greek island. This island called Crete. And Titus finds himself in the midst of a culture that's not so different than the one we find ourselves in. It's broken. People are out for themselves. People are notorious for being liars and doing anything that they need to to gain for themselves. Even those who've come into church, there's these corrupt leaders who act like they care about others, but ultimately they're trying to push their own agenda. And Paul is telling Titus, you got to defend the gospel, you got to defend sound doctrine, you have to defend teaching. And ultimately what we're going to see in Titus 2 today is that there's this incredible opportunity for not only the people that find themselves in these fledgling churches in Crete, where Titus is ministering, But also there's opportunity for people like you and me to criticize, to change, to transform, to be a part of God's work in the world around us. Not simply by posting that we don't agree with something. Not simply by criticizing and pointing a finger and saying they're doing it wrong. But instead by critiquing the brokenness of the world and offering it life and making something beautiful. That's what Titus 2 is all about, and we're going to get to see that this morning. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, let's read through verse 15. It says this, Hear the word of the Lord, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together, thanks be to God. So in the first chapter of Titus, what we got to walk through ultimately was a framework that describes God's character and his consistency. And ultimately, really, 
what it means for Titus to understand who God is and what he's done so that he can be this, this pastor, this elder, this one who's able to shepherd these churches that are on this island of Crete. Not only do we see the character of God and the consistency of God and who he is, but also that of leaders. Elders in chapter 1, the order is established. Paul instructs Titus, say, this is what the church is meant to look like if we're going to help people experience the gospel and know who Jesus is and what he's done for them. I mean, we've got to set some wise people in place that are marked by character that's emblematic of people who are mature and holy. People who love the Lord deeply. So there's this list of qualifications and all these things that Paul gives Titus to help him understand this is what leaders should look like. He really talks about the life of the church. And the great thing is it's not just about the character of the leaders and also the consistency of that character they're meant to model, but really the calling that's universal for all of us to live in this way. To live in a way that's above reproach, to live in a way that's holy, to minister the good news of Jesus to others really through the way that we live. And it's expounded in chapter 2 because now Paul is instructing Titus in a really helpful way that the things that are happening in the church, the things that you're teaching, the sound doctrine that I've instructed you in, these things to which you're called to be faithful, to share about the truth, about who Jesus is and what he's done, this is not just for a Sunday morning assembly. This is not just for a weekly worship gathering. Instead, this is for the entirety of your life. And Paul speaks to Titus in chapter 2 and really writes and drives this toward very specific people. People that are older. People that are younger. People that are male. People that are female. People that in this day and age find themselves as indentured servants. As bond servants and, and as slaves. Paul is saying that the gospel that is taught is for everyday life, for everyone. So here's three things that we're going to see in this passage this morning using that similar framework that we've walked through of character, consistency, and calling. Number one, we're going to see in chapter two the character of the Christian life is one that's marked by devotion and discipleship. Devotion and discipleship. That the Christian looks like I'm devoted to God I'm following, I'm trusting, I'm resting in, I'm being obedient to Jesus. And I'm teaching others about who he is and what he's done. Not only that, we're going to see the consistency of the Christian life. And that it's a daily expression of faith. A daily expression of faith. This isn't something that we come and experience for one moment on Sunday or one moment on Wednesday or at a women's event on a Saturday or, or just these kind of moments. No, it's for every moment. The consistency that we're called to live in is the daily expression of faith. And then finally, the calling of the Christian life, which is the doctrine of God's grace in Jesus. The calling of the Christian life, which is the doctrine of God's grace in Jesus. This belief, this truth, this reality that governs all of who we are. All of who we are. So let's look now specifically through these verses and walk through verses 1 through 15 uh, and really see these things that are illuminated in the text. First, the character of the Christian life. You look into verse 1 and you're going to see this. Paul says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now this is where uh, in, in kind of the contemporary age we wrestle with the problem of chapter and verse breaks. 
Uh, because I don't know about you, but when I took English as a young child, I learned that starting sentences with but was something that we didn't do, right? Really, what's happening here in this moment in verse 1 is really the continuation of the thought, which happens in verse 16 of chapter 1. These people that are corrupt leaders that have entered the church, they profess to know God, chapter 1, verse 16 says, but they deny him by their works. They're test- they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But Paul says, but as for you, so in contrast to that, you're called to teach sound doctrine. You're called to teach the truth of who God is and what he's done. So, what does that mean? It means that it's going to impact really every single person, no matter where they find themselves. He goes into these categories and describes this countercultural, beautiful picture of the Christian life. In a world in Crete where everyone's a liar, where people are harming one another, where people are using one another and manipulating one another for gain, right? you got a ton of influencers in this culture too. People who are using other people to monetize things. People who are using one another to get things that they want. And Paul says, here's the critique. Here's what we're going to do. This is the godly way of living. This is not, we're going to go win the culture war. This is not like we're just going to legislate righteousness for everybody. No, he says, we're going to build something beautiful. We're going to show them who Jesus is and what he's done in our very lives every single day through our devotion to God and our discipleship of teaching one another to be devoted to God as well. He expresses this specifically describing people with respect to their place in the culture and how their lives are to be devoted to God. Look at number one, older men. These kind of three triads of th- or two triads of things. Number one, that they're to be sober-minded. It ultimately means just clear-headed. There ought to be a sense of reasonableness and ability to think as older men, they should be ones who are thoughtful. That they're to be dignified, that they live in a way that is worthy of respect. That's what that means. We all know that, that it's important to respect our elders. And Paul's telling Titus, you've got to teach these people who are older, to live as ones worthy of respect. In a, in a young church at this time, there are people who are believers that are, that are older men. And Paul's saying that, that these traits, these things the Spirit's got to do in these folks, you've got to teach them to live in this way. So clear-headed, dignified, that they'd be worthy of respect. And then finally, self-controlled in this first tribe, that, that this is really not just about passions in the flesh. It's more so about the mind. Seeing that they ought to be self-controlled, taking every thought captive. Taking every thought captive. And to truly be focused on that which is important. To be focused on that which is important. What really matters. You know where I think, like, and I really believe this, where I think personally we start to lose this. And and one of the challenges for, for older men, I really believe this in our life and evangelicalism in the Christian world, is that we, we drift into looking at the culture and saying, look, look at the political shift. We've got to change and we've got to impact everything politically. If we could just get everybody on this side of the aisle to be more powerful than people on this side of the aisle, then everything will be better. And you need to hear me very specifically and clearly this, clearly this morning and know that we need to vote our conscience. We need to vote in a way that accords with what we believe, corresponds with the scriptures and the truth of God's word. Absolutely. We've got to do that. 
But at the same time, we're not called to depend on politics to change the culture. We're not meant to decide, man, I'm going to change everything by my vote. No, Paul says, look, there's older men, and this is the struggle, is the mind goes to all these, no, focus your mind on the, the thing that's of most importance, of primary importance. It's not affecting the world by what I type on the computer or the ballot I select. Of course we want to be faithful in those things. But moreover, the goal of primacy ought to be that I'm someone who's every day portraying Christ to the world around me. That's the thing that's going to change the culture. That's the thing that's going to actually change the world. Look at the second triad. He says that these older men are to be sound in faith and in love and in steadfastness, which is connected to hope. That they're to be people who live in such a way that they're ultimately faithful. They're trusting in Jesus. That it's expressed, it's being lived out in love, the love that Jesus commands, and then ultimately they're, they're walking in steadfastness. It means to remain under, to stay under, to continue faithfully in the midst of duress and pressure to walk with the Lord. Now the first thing we might look at and kind of sort of think about before we move on to the next topic is, well this is older men Surely that means mature men. Surely that means like a, a state of, of, of knowledge, of intellect, of maturity. No, it means old. Like it really means aged. It means people that are up there. All right? Like, and, and we don't have to be bashful about saying those sorts of things because I look at this congregation and people that are here and brothers and sisters who are older, and you live this way. You model this for me. You shepherd the church. And quite frankly, one of the things that's most challenging for, for you in the church and your life in the church is you think that the church has passed you by or that culture's passed you by. And in this world, in America, in the West, we don't really value people of wisdom like we should. We don't. We don't, we don't value people and say, look, we say well, what's, what's current is what's important. What's now is what's important. What's happening where I am is what's important. No, we need to be looking to those who, who are older than us, brothers and sisters, for wisdom and encouragement so that we can see their sober-mindedness and it can encourage us, that we can see their dignity and it can encourage us. We can see the very true reality that in a broken world, we got people that have self-controlled minds that can help us stay focused on the main thing, which is the gospel of Jesus. So Paul says this is the life of, of older men. So what does it look like? Older women. Older women. Likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. This is really, really important to state that this word reverent is this the, the, the way it's used. This is the only time it's used in the New Testament. But it's not just saying being quiet. It's actually saying something really, really powerful. It means to be holy or to be priestly. So you might read these verses, and if we live in a contemporary world where, where look, gender equality is an issue, and I understand that, you look at this and you're like, well, this is like, Paul is obviously putting down women. Paul is obviously saying that women can't do the things that men can do. Paul is obviously saying that, that women are to stay at home and, and to do these things, and we're going to get to these things in a moment. But the very first thing he says right out of the gate is that they're to be priestly. That this is who women are. That, they're, that this is 1 Peter 2, 9. That they're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. There's great dignity, great value that Paul is espousing here. He's saying older women have a place, 
of living in such a way where they're, they're priests, they minister, they teach others that they wouldn't be mastered uh, by, by wine, uh, or they wouldn't be slanderers, that they wouldn't fall into those traps. But that also, that this is what older women do, they would train young women that they would be teachers. That they would minister the gospel to people to train other people up so they could experience the very goodness of God. And so what does a life for the young woman look like? What are they to be trained in? It says this, to love their husbands and children. To love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. I want to be like so clear. You could read that and say, so this is just kind of, I'm putting this box as a young woman. Like these are the only things that I can do. This is what life looks like for me. There's a lot more than meets the eye in just a very cursory reading of this. Number one is this, to love their husbands and children. Our society is pushing back against this and saying that that's not honorable. That that's not enough. That in fact, if you care for your husband or you care for your children more than you care for yourself, then you're wasting your life. But here's what Paul's saying. Here's what he's writing. He's saying, don't you understand? It would be intuitive here, especially in this context, that Titus knows that husbands are to love their wives like Christ loves the church. This is common knowledge, genuinely. And, and, and it's why it's omitted here in so many ways that Titus has been with Paul, and he's been with him at Ephesus. He's been with him in all of these places where Paul would espouse these things. So it's very true. It's very natural to know that. So this is not a shot at saying, women, you got to go above and beyond what your husband would do. No. It's saying in response to the ways your husband has loved you, love them and love your children. Be self-controlled. Be pure. And then look at this phrase. Working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands. So does that mean ladies can't have a job in contemporary society? Well, we better hope not because my family's in a lot of sin. All right? Seriously, I want you to think about this. We read that, something like working at home, we think, man, well, we're just relegated to the house. There, there's nothing else. But you've got to understand who Paul is and what he's teaching and what he's sharing and he, what he's writing to Titus in the context of the culture because Paul obviously knows this, a student of the Old Testament like no other. You know what? One of the most revered and kind of valued pictures of, of womanhood that we see in the Scriptures is it's found in the book of Proverbs in chapter 31. You've probably heard this phrase, wanting people to be a Proverbs 31 woman. Well, I want to tell you a little bit about the Proverbs 31 woman. In verse 18, it says, She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. In verse 22, it says, She makes bed coverings. In verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. You know what the Proverbs 31 woman looks like? Someone who's working. Someone who's working outside the home. Someone who's doing incredible things to share the resources of life with others. So is Paul saying you can't have a job? No, not at all. 
That's not what he's saying in the slightest. What he's saying is that young women are to be ones who end their life with their family and children reflect the love of Jesus to those around them. That they're explicit in the way that they live and they love and they serve so that people see the gospel in them. That's what Paul is describing here. He also goes on to to write to young men. And this is where people get frustrated too, right? Because it's like, hey, the young men only get one thing. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Really? That's their list? One thing? Well, guess what? That list is everything. I don't know if you've ever met a young man, but self-control is not at the top of his awareness or radar or probably skill, right? And that's largely because it can't be a skill. It's really a fruit of the Spirit. And Paul's telling Titus that young men are to be people who are filled with the Spirit and who are temperate. And who respect others and listen to others and look to these older men as those who are dignified, as people they want to be. He also talks in verse 7 to Titus as a model of good works and teaching and showing integrity and dignity and sound speech for a very important purpose. The life of those on Crete in the church at this time probably didn't look like a lot different from the life of the culture. Do you know what that means? That there's all these attacks coming against the church. And there's accusations being made. That, what, what about your life is so different? What, is, what about what you're doing is so different? Because Paul's not saying destroy the culture. He's saying no, show beauty, build beauty within it. Show people a family who loves one another, who is sacrificial, who cares for one another. Somebody who meets the needs of those around them, who ministers to other people. And you'll see somebody that God will use to transform the world. Paul is saying to Titus that we got to have lives like this because there are people that will have evil things to say about us. What's the best way to prevent against that? It's to live godly lives. And then the people around them will, as verse 8 says, have nothing evil to say. And he says this very clearly about us. He says it's about us. Paul didn't say they'll never ha- they won't have anything evil to say about you and make it singular. He says us. You know what that means? That we're all called to live in this way as representative of Christ as a body. We ought to be encouraging one another in purity, in holiness, in challenging one another, and holding one another accountable So that the world could see us as the very body of Christ. So it's not just an individual endeavor. And finally, in verses 9 through 10, you'll see Paul address bondservants. And I think for a number of us in the contemporary world, this is one of the most challenging things that we read in Scripture. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and you're going to see it in verses 1 and 2. In the same similar type letter that Paul would write, he'd write to Timothy, he's going to address... How servants, how slaves, indentured servants are meant to respond to their masters. Now, you would think in some ways, like, wait, why isn't Paul appealing for just total upheaval of this? Why isn't there like, he's not, why is he just telling everybody to rebel? Why isn't he saying, let's break down the system? The Greco-Roman world at this time is so embedded and entrenched with indentured servitude, we're talking about like the majority of people. The wealth distribution is, is small percentage-wise, but the majority of people even really. And the church, this is why so many people that were, were servants, were bond servants, 
And women, Paul's speaking really directly to them, they're in the church because in a society that's oppressive toward women, in a society that's, that's, that's making people slaves, they're finding life and freedom and hope in the church. So they're experiencing joy in life here. And Paul says, you know, it's more powerful than trying to just throw over the apple cart and ultimately this entire world system of slavery is for you in the midst of this to say, I count my life as nothing compared to the gospel. And to really be one who said, I'm going to treat my master, I'm going to treat the one that's in charge of me, the one that's over me, with care, with love, in such a way that I'll show good faith. Not argumentative and not stealing from them, so that they'll experience the doctrine of God. Why would a slave be kind to his master? That's otherworldly. That's what Paul's saying. In an otherworldly way, they get the opportunity to proclaim the goodness of God in the midst of a culture that is broken. So what do you see here? People who are devoted to God and people who are meant to lead and love one another. Paul says this thing to older men, but you'll notice everything he says to them is, is ultimately something that is reflected out to others. Being dignified warrants a relationship with other people. We don't just think about, I, I, I walk around and say, oh, I'm, I'm very dignified. Thank you, me. Right? No. It's, it has relationship to others. The very clear instruction is that, that older women would teach younger women. And this self-control thing that, that Paul is saying to young men is meant to say, I want to look to older men. So there's this element that Paul says, hey, you want to make the world beautiful? Be devoted to God and teach one another what it means to know the Lord. There's a call to discipleship. Second, so the character of the Christian life is really meant to be found in, in devotion and doctrine. This is a really simple thing, but you can see in verses 2 through 10, and specifically in verse 12, in what Paul calls the present age, the consistency of the Christian life is the daily expression of faith. That these things don't take place Every once in a while, but this is constant. The consistency of the Christian life is not that Titus gives these people doctrine on Sundays and they go do different stuff Monday through Saturday, but that every ounce of God's word that is taught to them has importance and relevance and necessity for their very daily lives. Whether they're an older man or an older woman or a younger man or a younger woman, or Titus the pastor, or the slave, wherever they find themselves. This doctrine is for them at all times. And this is what Paul says, upright and godly lives in verse 12, in the present age. This is that building something beautiful. Not just revolting against everything that's happening around us, but revealing that we're redeemed. And letting that Incredible power changed the world. So the calling is next. The calling of the Christian life. The doctrine of God's grace in Jesus Christ. If you read Romans or you read Ephesians or read Colossians, and John Stott points this out, but you read a lot of those books and this is what you're going to see. You're going to see this is why you live this way and here's how to live this way. 
But here, Paul has reversed the order. He's given us how to live. These are the characters. These are the things that we're supposed to exhibit. And this he gives us now is why. And why are we called to live this way? Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And then to get to the point to live controlled, upright, and godly lives. Man, you want to change the world? You want to help people experience the Lord? You want to see your world transformed? Your culture changed? What are you called to do? To trust in grace. To respond to the truth, the belief, the doctrine of grace. Because what changes us from being ungodly? What mitigates our worldly passions? Is it getting better? Is it trying harder? No, look at it. It's grace. It's grace that trains us to renounce it. It's grace that trains us to live self-control lives. It's grace that trains us to live in a godly way. Paul's saying, look at who you are. You've been redeemed. When I look at you, I look at you, I see people. I know your story. I can look you in the eye and say, you've been redeemed. God has transformed your life. You don't move forward in that by just trying harder. No, you look to the cross and it happens in a deeper way, in a deeper way. Paul's saying in this moment that salvation is not merely being freed from the consequence of sin. Here's what he's saying. You're freed from its control. You don't have to live under the control of sin anymore. And perhaps in the most beautiful moment here, it says he wants to purify for himself a people for his own possession. For his own possession. For we're created for, zealous for, good works. Even as we look into next week, we're going to see it all tied together where Paul writes to Titus and says, man, there's good works that are meant to happen. And you and I can get these things really, really, really tangled. That my job is to have good works in my life. My job is to be a person that does good works. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 would say this, we're created, right, We're truly created for good works, for his workmanship. But those only come after we've experienced grace. Because this is what Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 would say right before it. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. So Paul says, Titus, you're living in this world and in this culture and the Lord wants to see it transformed and changed. And he presents to them, he gives Titus some instruction, some insight, and really the picture of what this means. It means to present yourself with every good work because of all of the good that Christ has done for you. It's a life of response. We're meant to be living, breathing reflections of redemption. So here's two things I want to share with you as our worship team comes that we can apply today. One, this passage, perhaps unlike any other in so many ways, would help us understand the need for discipleship. The need for relationships with one another. Who are you leading? Who are you leading? And I don't just mean in a corporate sense. And I don't just mean... In your home, those things are important. Those things are valid, absolutely. But who are you leading in the gospel? Are you teaching someone? Are you telling someone about what Christ has done for you? Do you have a relationship like that? 
One of my greatest hopes that coming out of last night's women's event is that, that ladies connected and, and got to connect and know one another. My hope is that there'd be some, some older women that would pursue some younger women and say, I just want to teach you. I want to share with you about life. I want to give you some wisdom about what God has done in me. And there'd be young women that would desire that, perhaps even pursue that and see someone and say, will you help me understand how to grow in my faith? Look, we want the same thing as men. I need to be pursuing others, and I need others pursuing me. We need to be in discipleship relationships. This is the countercultural life that we're called to. I would say this. Look, if I could give you one thing I could plug, it would be Richard Self and Matt Stringfellow have a class. On Wednesday nights, you saw the announcement, this class, Cultivate Discipleship. It's an opportunity to say, man, what does it look like to lead someone and to be led? And then finally this, that you get that picture of the older woman saying, teach, or, or, or Paul saying to, to Titus to teach the older women, to teach younger women. And he's showing this picture of intentional relationships in life. That, man, everyday life matters. That mundane stuff matters. That, man, you can make a cup of coffee matter. You can make your lunch matter. Share the gospel with someone. Help them understand the grace that has drawn you to good works. If we live in these ways, we'll do the most countercultural, revolutionary, crazy thing ever. We'll be a part of God building something beautiful in his church. If you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, we long to be the church Father, that's beautiful to this world, that's attractive to this world, that is winsome in this world. Father, and it's not going to come by making things bigger and better. It's going to come by things becoming more beautiful, and that happens in our daily lives. So, Father, would you give us opportunities to disciple one another, to teach one another, to minister to one another. Father, to live lives that are devoted to you, where we can teach and share the good news of what you've done with those around us. Father, we ask these things in your name. Amen.